0: It wouldn't be until the end of the Civil War that the United States would lose its plural possessive meaning, or at least that's what conventional wisdom says. When the United States became one, is instead of are, will in some ways be an undercurrent of this podcast scope. But by the pivotal year of 1800, sewing together a body politic especially one that excludes more than it includes, or, as Agrippa reminded anxious Americans, was too large and diverse for its own good, would prove quite a task. Within a decade, the fledgling United States had survived a war against Great Britain, stood shakily on the Articles of Confederation, and solidified its foundation with a federal constitution. This era is taught as the Federalist or the Early National Period, Another way to see it is an era of consolidation, of finances, of military might, of government, of culture. In short, true freedom needed to be cooled in order for new hierarchies to evolve and place the branches of government and commerce above states' concerns. Reading the Founding Fathers of this era, this tension is expressed through the epithets of monarchist and democrat. Every move by every person involved seemingly took us in one of these two directions. If there was another pathway, it proved to be too obscured for some time. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere social media, Patreon if you want to support the podcast, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, episode, The United States Are a Young Nation, America on the Eve of 1800. The head of the federal government was George Washington, followed by John Adams. If we recognize the consolidation of this era, it's important to see so much of what becomes American norms are being wholly improvised, for good and for ill. The Federalist culture, if there was to be such a thing, didn't go unchallenged. The presence of Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State under Washington and Vice President under Adams, pushed back on banking and other financial projects like a national currency, on judicial precedents and on the size and the scope of the government as it was being built piece by piece because of the relative diversity of opinions in the cabinet at least for a time before jefferson would resign under washington he and his friend and framer of the constitution james madison are credited as the opposition to federalism and in the creation of national political parties <laughs> But if the government was finding ways to gel, what of its citizens? By 1800, the population of the United States sat at 5.2 million people. Foreign observers would note how propulsive American ideals and norms were, seeming to change culturally and materially every six months. Most Americans, an estimate nearing 90%, were farmers, though we know a sizable portion of those were not the ones tilling the soil. Of the 5.2 million, one-fifth were enslaved. In the South, we're looking at an enslaved population that rises as we head further in that direction, 30% in Maryland, 40% in Virginia, and over 50% in South Carolina. In total, 90% of enslaved people came from the South, the starting point of our expedition. But one can mark the slow decline of farming as an occupation here, perhaps. While love of money that Benjamin Rush laments after Lewis and Clark returned from the West still lay in the future, the consolidation, there's that word again, of states' debts from the War of Independence into a general federal debt is surely the first step. Over the Federalist years, taxes were lower, by 50-90%, to 90%, and with importation of goods resuming after the war, spending rose threefold. The value of American imported consumer goods went from 23,500,000 in 1790 to 63 million in 1795, according to Gordon Wood. In truth, enterprise and business were emerging. Craftsmen were coming into their own. The voice of the people and their government is loud and unanimous for commerce, proclaimed Samuel Mitchell in 1799. Their inclinations and habits are adopted to trade and traffic, from one end of the continent to the other. The universal roar is commerce, commerce, in all events, commerce, end quote. Agrippa may have been on to something as the North led the way in mercantile business while the South lingered. Its aristocracies, such as in Virginia's Tidewater, built on the backs of Black slavery, had stalled, for now. The cultural wars against idleness in this era, perceived or otherwise, would turn parasitic enslavers into cavaliers, this notion would be exclusively inclusive, if you will, able to ignite the imagination of young white men as the 18th century drew to a close. Johann David Schof, who came to America as a surgeon with the regiment of Hessian troops fighting for the British king, noted that to Americans, specifically those from the back country that we'll be getting to know soon, but in general as well, Natural freedom is what pleases them. This natural freedom would push the Clarks to Louisville, Daniel Boone to the Cumberland Gap, and many white Americans to move west parcel by parcel, their freedom not beholden to anyone. And this natural freedom is distant from our 21st century viewpoint. It's hard to conceive of the changes that went from colony to nation. The Cultural Revolution of the United States touched upon so many different areas like attire, dress became consolidated into professional symbols, family life, its authority, the bulwark against revolution, democracy, Jacobinism, according to John Adams. Sex, the population won't explode on its own. Patriarchy, the population won't explode without us having an opinion about it. Religion, denominations on denominations. Education, more rebellious teams pushing on strictures that they felt needed to be washed away, along with their former colonial status. Even decorums took a blow. Gordon Wood notes, quote, Despite all the rhetoric promoting politeness and civility, Americans by 1800 were already known for pushing and shoving each other in public, and for their dread of ceremony. Foreigners thought the Americans' eating habits were atrocious, their food execrable, and their coffee detestable. Americans tended to eat fast, often sharing a common bowl or cup to bolt their food in silence and to use only their knives in eating end quote." Their eating habits and drinking, which we'll talk about a lot more later, would soon transfer into cultures of gun duels and sporadic violence. America on the eve of 1800 was a beast of its own making, being made and remade on the daily. But it was also perceived as well. In the years between John Locke's In the Beginning All the World Was America in 1690 and de Tocqueville's Democracy in America in 1835, which expands on the cultural transformation of the revolution as Will inhabited, Europe would view its former colonists and neighbors in a variety of ways, some theoretical and appealing to international sensibilities as they stood at any given moment, to conflicting policies and goals that would lead to a variety of wars on the North American continent. Washington's plea of neutrality as he left office in 1796 thus became a famous totem for a road less traveled, not only with the domestic political sphere, but internationally as well. We'll explore the intertwining fortunes of Europe and North America in the years to come, along with the misfortunes of Native America. Washington left office, and John Adams was elected to continue the formation of the Federalist regime. It was a defining moment in U.S. political history, not only in Washington's resignation after two terms, but Adams' peaceful transition to power. The Adams administration is known today as one of uglier excess, portents of a history to come, the alien and sedition acts, the quasi-war with France after years of attempting to find comedy after the French Revolution and the reign of terror, and the rise of factions, namely Jefferson's Democratic-Republicans, in opposition to Hamilton and his perceived increasingly monarchistic tendencies, as well as Jefferson and Madison advancing the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions and the idea of nullification. And it's here that we'll leave it. A decade before Adams would fight for his political life against his soon-to-be ex-friend, Thomas Jefferson, Adams wrote Benjamin Rush in June of 1789, After wishes that the government would be located in Philadelphia, where Meriwether Lewis would consult with Rush in 1803, Adams hints that he'll make do with New York. However, this correspondence was Adams convincing Rush that political discussions aren't over, that disagreements will surely arise. He writes, quote, that every part of the conduct and feelings of the Americans tends to that species of republic called a limited monarchy, I agree, end quote. While he still feels the fire of 1775, he's not one of those who considers hereditary monarchy or aristocracy as rebellion against nature, as he put it. On the contrary, America, he continued, quote, must resort to them as an asylum against discord, seditions, and civil war, and that at no very distant period of time, I shall not live to see it, but you may, end quote. Adams would famously die on July 4th, 1826, along with his famously rekindled friend, Thomas Jefferson, brought together by a one Benjamin Rush, who ended up actually dying a decade earlier, in 1813. Adams notes that titles and pageantry are part of all governments, all religions, all families. He assures Rush that he loves the people and that he wouldn't serve another hour if he didn't, but ominously he closes, quote, my country appears to me, I assure you, in great danger of fatal divisions, and especially because I scarcely know of two persons who think, speak, and act alike in matters of government, end quote. The election of 1800 would be a contest between those two persons.